Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. Uh, thanks for making the first Sunday of the year special here at River Tree. Just uh, your attendance, worship, uh, it's already off, off to a really great start. I um, want to welcome those at the Cove campus and watching online. I know that as we approach a new year, I think we all approach it differently, but I can just tell you that like, I appreciate a chance to start again. Uh, I know it is, uh, feels at times like it's a mind game, like it was the 31st and then it's the first and it's like, oh, it's a whole new year. And, you know, you start setting resolutions and goals and you feel like you are kind of closing, you know, pages, turning pages and closing chapters on, on 23 and like, oh, 24 is kind of opening up to us. And like, I, I know that there's, um, we all approach that differently, but I, I think I need that this year. And maybe, maybe you do too. There's something about, I think even God knows uh, we, need, we need fresh starts. Uh, we, we need a chance to, to kind of close out certain things and a chance to, be, to begin again. And I don't know how, um, what this year is going to look like for you, but my thought is, man, if we experience something today, like on this Sunday, first Sunday of the year, what if, what if something that happens this morning kind of resets the rest of your year? What if, what if it reshapes your goals and resolutions? What if it begins to kind of touch uh, different things that you're excited about next year, but it, but it happens specifically through something that God is doing. I don't, um, a little, I don't get a whole lot of firsts, like first times at things anymore. Uh, those are getting fewer and fewer. So to have like a first and, and, and to be here with you this morning, like I'm, I'm excited about it because the gospel tells us this, that, you know, even though we may feel like to go from the 31st to the first, you know, what does a day change? You know, the gospel tells us that our lives can change in a moment that something can happen in our hearts, that God could do a work, that there is something that could reshape and end one life and start a whole new life uh, in a brand new way and in a way that you were meant for. So I'm praying for that this morning. I think, I think there's something in, even in this passage that we're gonna look at this morning that we've just may, been waking our way through Matthew that could, could really help us this morning start this whole new year in a, in a special way. So Matthew chapter 21, we're gonna read the first 11 verses uh, if you're visiting with us this Sunday, like we've been making our way through the gospel of Matthew. And so here's, here's where we are. We're going to pick up in a section of scripture that you may be familiar with. And I just hope the Lord will use it in a unique way in our lives today. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So last week, I know it was uh, one of those holiday Sundays, not everybody might've been here or, or, or where, but we, 
we finished off Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, it starts, it begins really the final section of, of Matthew's gospel. It is this last week that Matthew begins to record kind of from 20 into 21, what we're seeing right now, the last week of Jesus' ministry up until the cross. And we call it the Passion Week. And this particular section of scripture is what has been known as the triumphal entry. And it's the moment on Sunday, first day of the week, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And Matthew has so many things here that he wants us to see. But I think it's, I think it's unique here. Maybe, maybe a shift as well in Matthew's gospel, in the way he's talking about Jesus' ministry, and even the way that Jesus has kind of kept things out of the public eye, and now clearly, man, there's this huge parade uh, and entourage and, and attention. If you go back to Matthew chapter 26, Peter in that passage confesses Jesus as the Christ, calls him, you are the Christ, the Lord. You are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus tells Peter, don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. Don't let anybody else know. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper and then instructs him, don't tell anybody what happened to you. Don't tell them that you were healed. Just go present yourself to the priest, right? Go about kind of the normal business. So it's, it's interesting in different points of the gospel, Jesus is very private, kind of does not want this news of who he is, of what's happening, of the miracles, of the power to get out. But now here, clearly, it's out. I mean, he is walking through some things right now that is even drawing more attention, more excitement to what's going on. And so there's a number of things that Matthew wants us to know as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And one, it's the time. It's the time of the Passover. It's the celebration of the Passover. It's one of the three major holidays within the life of Israel in which everybody made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So imagine this. It's Passover, we're celebrating this in Jerusalem. You, as well as hundreds of other thousands, hundreds of thousands of other Jews are making their way, journeying, trekking all the way to Jerusalem. You're coming from in country, out of country, and you're making your way to Jerusalem to celebrate this really special holiday that centers in this miracle and hope and provision of God in the Exodus. So if you're familiar with the Passover, it's connected to the Exodus where God freed Israel from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery, and the particular provision that God provided that seemed to tip the scales was this Passover lamb. And so the lamb's blood was placed upon the doorposts of each believing home. And as God's judgment fell on all over Egypt, as, as death came and touched every home and the firstborn of every household was going to die, if your home had this lamb's blood spread across the doorposts of the home, the death angel passed over your house. There had been a substitutionary death and God recognized that substitutionary death by the lamb's blood and death passed over you. Wonderfully, three days after that, after that moment that death passed over, three days after that, Israel makes its way through the Red Sea and eventually ends up in the, in the promised land. And from that point on, Israel would annualize this holiday. They would celebrate it. They would come back every year to Jerusalem and remember. Remember what God had done. Not just remember the, the sovereignty of God, the power of God. This, this holiday had this kind of liberation feel to it. I mean, God was the God of freedom. God had exercised his power, his sovereignty, his miracles to free Israel. Not only would they remember what God had done, but then they would pray for future provision. God, help us. 
there was a current oppressor as well. Rome was in charge. And so Passover had this kind of sense of like hope and freedom and liberation that God would do something again. God would do those same kind of miracles. God could liberate his people again. And so everybody's making their way into the city. Everybody's moving towards this celebration and they're singing. Anytime you took a trip to Jerusalem around one of these holidays, there were certain psalms that you sang. So your family, everybody else's family making their way down the path is singing psalms. And the psalms are the psalms of ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These collection of psalms were the psalms that you you sang as you approached Jerusalem, as you ascended to the holy city. Let me show you one of the psalms that would have been sung on the road here. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So it's Passover. People are making their way. They're they're, they're singing. Matthew chapter 20 says that Jesus has left Jericho. He's He's gone from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. And while people are singing, while people are getting ready, while people are talking about the miracles, while they're reminiscing and celebrating this great freedom, liberation work of God through the Exodus, Jesus heals two men. He heals two blind men. Now, that was a unique miracle. As far as miracles go, the healing of blind men was something, Exodus chapter 4 says that only God could do that. Only God could heal blind men. Isaiah chapter 35 says that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he will heal the blind. It'll be a, a, a miracle that points, that signals to the Messiah. So Jesus, in the middle of all these people, singing, liberation, moving from Jericho. Jericho, it's the first city within the promised land. It was that huge walled city of conquest. So Jericho, it's a place of victory where God had showed up, where Joshua had led God's people. Joshua whose name means God saves. It's the same root meaning of Jesus. Jesus' name means God delivers, God saves. None of this is being lost on the crowd. Like they're sensing something's going on. It's Passover. We've left Jericho. We're singing songs about God's deliverance. And Jesus heals two blind men. The crowd thinks something's happening. The crowd starts to buzz. The crowd's spreading you know, the news all around as thousands of thousands of people are making their way to Jerusalem, there's this belief that the king is here. There's a belief that God is going to do something. And in that moment, Jesus says, go get me a donkey. Why? Why does Jesus need to ride a donkey? In fact, the first 11 verses here of the triumphal entry, seven of them are about a donkey. So, Jesus sends the disciples, they go get a donkey, they bring it back. Now, in our culture, that won't make a lot of sense. Why is Jesus riding a donkey? But in the ancient culture, riding a donkey or a mule designated royalty. It was the way that you inaugurated a king. You can go back to 1 Kings chapter 1. David's getting old. 
He wants Solomon to become the new king. What does he do? He puts Solomon on a mule and marches him through Jerusalem to the crowd's cheers and songs. So Jesus knows what the crowd is going to know. He knows what they're going to think. He takes this donkey. He begins to ride it. The gospel says it's a donkey that had never been ridden before. And he rides this through and so much so that Matthew picks up on this and he says, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. And that's just what the crowds are doing. Shouting, rejoicing, celebrating. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, the king, and they believe it's unfolding right before their eyes. It's happening so much so that they begin to throw their coats and outer garments on the path for Jesus to walk over. This was also another kind of ancient way of showing submission. In other words, it's it's people saying, your rule and authority is the most important thing over my life. I submit to it. I come underneath you. And they start waving palm branches. Now, now to understand what this means, you've got to go back in history just a little bit. If you go back, you'll see that in 332 BC, Alexander the Great conquered the area. He was Greek. So before Rome was there, the Greeks were there. And in 332 BC, Alexander the Great conquered the area. And he reigned and ruled until around 160 BC. And in 160 BC, a family led by Judas Maccabee decided to revolt, to have an insurrection. And partly the the tipping point was, is the Greeks set up a statue of Zeus within Jerusalem's temple and desecrated it. So Judas Maccabee gathered other Israelites and they they kicked Greece out. They they kicked the the remaining Greeks that were in Jerusalem out of the city. It's where the holiday Hanukkah originates from. And Judas' son, Simon, then cleanses the temple, rededicates it, and he does so through the waving of palm branches. And from that point on, 160 BC to 60 BC, Israel experienced 100 years of sovereignty, 100 years of freedom under Jewish rule. And from that point on, the palm branch became a symbol and sign of Israel's freedom. It became a sign of liberation. They actually minted it on their coins, the palm branch, to remind themselves of Israel's freedom, of Israel's independence, of Israel's strength. The zealots... In Jesus' day, who wanted to throw off Rome, their symbol was the palm branch. In fact, it was illegal to wave a palm branch. If you waved a palm branch, it meant insurrection. It meant revolt. And Rome would kill anyone who waved a palm branch. And yet it's happening. Everyone's doing it. So, so they're, they are saying something here. They're laying their coats down. They're waving palm branches. They're singing songs. Jesus has just healed two people. The place is going crazy, so much so that some of the religious leaders say, hey, Jesus, you need to stop this. You need to end this. Look at this, Luke 19, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, stop this. And he answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, I I think Jesus is saying like, could be saying up to three things here. Let me tell you what I think he could be saying. All right, there's three levels to Jesus' response. On the first level, Jesus is saying, you know, even the stones are gonna cry out. In other words, like, oh, this is happening. 
you can't stop this. Right? No one can stop this. This is, this is happening. Everyone's involved. Right? That's on one level. On another level, I think Jesus could be saying like, hey, like even the dumbest of things know what's going on. And so if you're trying to stop this, right, even the hardest, most ignorant things like rocks will praise right now, will recognize what's going on. Right? That, I think there could be one even lower, even another one that's a bit more gritty here. I think it really, this could be what Jesus is saying. Because when he talks about the very stones will cry out, he's likely referencing Habakkuk. And this little section, stones crying out, comes from Habakkuk 2, verse 9 and 10. Uh, listen to the context of this. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Habakkuk 2 is a passage about injustice, right? Habakkuk 2 is a passage that injustice is witnessed. It's witnessed. In other words, there, God will use bad people and bad things for a specific time and a specific purpose, but injustice will be judged. You, you won't get away with evil. And I think Jesus, in this moment, it's quite a one-liner. Even the stones will cry out. He's pretty much saying, you're kind of like the Babylonians. God used you for a specific purpose in a specific time, but he will, as he judged them, he will also judge you. In other words, in days of injustice are over. Your influence is ending. That's a pretty good zinger. Like, that's what he's saying to him. So just step back for a second and imagine our next presidential candidate with a million-man march parade into D.C. He's just won the debate. Right? He's just silenced all his opponents. There are um, fireworks. He's wrapped himself in the Constitution. Right? There's a, everybody's eating apple pie. There's, there's, there's bald eagles soaring. Like, there's like a, a gathering all over the place just flying. Right? And everybody's looking at this guy going like, this is it. This is the one. This is God's man. This is the person who's going to save us. This is the person who's going to make everything right. right? That's what's happening. And, and Jesus has placed himself right in the middle of it. Like all of this is happening. Jerusalem is buzzing about the noise and the news that Jesus is here. Jesus is being heralded. They're singing songs. They're praising him. They're laying down their jackets. They're waving palm branches. There's religious change. There's political changes. All of this is happening through Jesus. And you know what Jesus does at the end of all of this? He weeps. He cries. Luke 19, let me show you this, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you 
And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus is saying in the middle of all this, something's missing. There's a miss. The people are excited. The people are cheering. The people are saying good things. They're, They're calling Jesus king. Right, But somehow, in all the prophecies, somehow, in all of their hopes, they're missing it. Jesus enters Jerusalem, heralded as the Messiah, and then he just weeps. He weeps. He says, if only you had known what would bring you peace. If only you had really known what you needed, what would bring you peace. Peace in the Bible is often connected to the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means peace, but shalom, it's a, it's a deeper word. It's, it's layered. Peace is more than just a ceasefire. Peace is more than just having no resistance. When, when the Bible talks about peace or it talks about shalom, it talks about wholeness. It talks about completeness. When there's real biblical peace, everything is in its right place. Everything is where it's supposed to be. That's biblical peace, Right? everything in proper relationship where it's supposed to be. I think I glimpsed Shalom over the holidays. My house has begun, that's probably for the last few years, we've begun to take out a puzzle uh, when everybody's coming back from college and the house is full and there's, there's, there's more eyes and hands and bodies. There's a puzzle that usually hits the kitchen table and it stays there for the course of the holidays. And to be honest, I'm not, incredibly interested in it. A few of the family members are, I would say Jennifer, my wife, Simon, my oldest, like they're the, they're the workmen. They're the true architects. Uh, the rest of us dabble. We, we walk by and see if we can put one piece where we can find it, but they're the ones that spend hours upon hours upon hours just kind of laboring over it. And here's that sentiment. If you've ever put a puzzle together that's a you know, thousand pieces or more, at some point along the way, you start to say this, I don't think all the puzzle pieces are here. This is not working. There's something missing here. I, like, there's something like you're, you're smashing pieces into one another. Like, I know this is supposed to fit, but it doesn't. And so the puzzle was making pretty good, good progress until, the, you know, towards the end of the holidays, I saw Simon standing over. I'm like, hey, man, it, it, this looks amazing. Was, it's missing two pieces. It's missing two pieces. And he showed me, these are the two pieces. I said, well, he said, I'm taking a picture of it. I'm sending it to mom. It's missing two pieces. I said, well, Sarah said that there might have been a couple pieces that fell into the kitchen table. Like, why don't we pull the table apart and see if there's any pieces there? And sure enough, pull the table apart, two pieces. Simon picks them up, puts them in. Jennifer walks in a couple moments later. She looks at the puzzle. She's just staring at it. And then she does this. I mean, this deep sigh. And I said, I think that's shalom. Everything is where it's supposed to be. Everything is right. Everything is in its place. I think I know why people who build these giant puzzles then frame them and put them on the wall. <laughs> Have y'all done that? It's, it's too much. Like, you know, you, you know, like, look what I did. Everybody can see this for forever, all time now. This, but this, this sense is like, oh, it, it happened, right? Everything fell into place. And there's something about that that kind of, kind of wrestles through, we kind of navigate that because life isn't always like that. 
Life doesn't feel like that. Life often feels like there's pieces missing. Life often feels like if I'm trying to arrange this, I'm trying to fix this, I'm trying to manage this over here, and we're constantly looking for everything to fit, and, and it just doesn't. In fact, Romans chapter 1 tells us there are pieces missing, that the world is broken. In fact, Romans tells us not only are there pieces missing, but we've lost the cover picture to the puzzle itself. We're not even sure what we're building. And this is the world, broken, unsure, missing pieces. And so we devote ourselves daily. How do I make things fit? How do I make things come together? You meet a person of influence, you begin to wonder, I wonder if they can help me do this thing I need to do. You meet somebody, you you work with somebody, how can that person make my life better? How can they help me accomplish the things that I need to do? If this thing could just happen at work, then I think I would be okay. If this thing would just happen at school or my family or with my relationships, then I think I would be okay. If I were just a little bit healthier, like I just need to get healthier, if I could just make a little bit more money, that would probably answer some of the things. Maybe if I could just get this medical issue resolved, I could just have peace. Like if I could just make this fit, our lives are always within that conversation. How do I find peace? How do I put enough pieces together, make enough things fit to rest, to have peace, to have shalom? For the crowd, for the crowd that Jesus is walking into, you know what they want? You know what the peace they want Jesus to fix and adjust? Rome. Get rid of Rome. If you'll get rid of Rome, everything else will fall into place. We'll have everything else that we need. But Jesus is here to do something greater than that. He's here to do something more than that. When we're always arranging and trying to control the outside, our control ends up, our desire to control the outside makes us anxious. But Jesus came that we might have peace. And peace doesn't come when you finally have control over your life. Peace comes when you no longer need control over your life. You hear the difference? We work so hard to arrange. We work so hard to make everything fit. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming so that you no longer have to make life do that. Jesus is riding a young donkey. The gospel say it's a donkey that's never been ridden before. So imagine that just for a second. This young donkey, unbroken, can't imagine that, that, would in, that this young donkey is going to enjoy somebody on it. And Jesus is riding it while people are throwing coats in front of the donkey, singing songs, waving palm branches. And Jesus walks peacefully into Jerusalem. He is the model of control so that you don't have to be. So that you don't have to be. When we live in fear because of what's happened to us in the past, or we live in anxiety because of what could happen tomorrow, we miss what God may want to do in your life right now, right here. And that's what's happening in the crowd. That's what they're beginning. Peace doesn't flow from our abilities. Peace doesn't flow from our resources. Peace comes when we stop trying to control the world around us and allow God to deal with the world in us. In us, what's happening inside of us. I love this, I love this section from Donald Miller. Christian author wrote this. He says, I think every conscious person, every person who is awake to the functioning principles of his, within his reality has a moment where he stops blaming the problems in the world on groupthink, on humanity and authority, and starts to face himself. 
I hate this more than anything. This is the hardest principle within Christian spirituality for me to deal with. The problem is not out there. The problem is the needy beast of a thing that lives in my chest. The crowd, they are so ready for Jesus to take on Rome. Jesus is so ready to take them on, to deal with them. Alongside all the crowds, right, the coats, the palm branches, the cheers. I wonder if the crowd's missing something else that was also happening in Passover. Because as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, there's something else also going on. On this same day, tens of thousands of sheep are being guided from the fields in Bethlehem into the temple. It's Lamb Selection Sunday. And on the day where every family in Jerusalem selects a lamb, unblemished, spotless, to be their Passover sacrifice, Jesus himself is going into Jerusalem. Maybe you could hear John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus at one time, he said, behold the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Because when Jesus deals with sin, he gives us access to real peace. That's what happens. Listen to what Colossians 1 says. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The crowd doesn't know that they need a king to die for them. They need something to happen within them. Jesus is going to be the substitutionary sacrifice. He is going to be the Passover lamb who experiences death so that everyone else who believes in him, death would pass over them. And this is what's going to happen when we see and believe in who Jesus is as this king. Not just the king that can overthrow Rome, but the king that can overthrow me the one who can deal with my own heart, then we are united with him and the righteousness of Jesus becomes something that we become beneficiaries of. His obedience, his right standing, his life becomes something that then becomes something we also get to be seen through. Begin to, it becomes something that's been imputed to us. And when you have the right standing of Jesus before God, when you're, when you're, when the things that cause you to be dead, sinful, shameful have now been dealt with, and when the penalty and power of sin has been removed in your life, and you now stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by trusting in him and seeing him as the king of your heart, then you have peace. You have peace with God. And the peace of God flows from peace with God. And this peace of God then begins to transform our lives because it is a peace that then surpasses all other kinds of understanding. It's the most wonderful thing that you can have is to be right with God, to have your sins dealt with, to be forgiven for the lamb of sacrifice to die for you. And when that happens and when you're cleansed and forgiven and made right before God, that kind of peace and restoration, that type of shalom, it begins to order everything else. It begins to make things fit that didn't fit before. It begins to reshape your life. This is what we begin to realize, that now, because of Jesus, God is not just by our side, but God is on our side. 
And he will forever be your faithful father and friend. And you no longer need to worry about ultimate outcomes of things because the most critical and most determining thing about your life, your relationship with God, has been set and established by the God who is now with you and for you because of Jesus. A lot of times people think that, I just, how can you know God? He's so high. He's so amazing. He's so separate. But the crowd, and I think for you and I, we miss God because God comes too low. He's so near. He's so modest. He's so humble. We could miss it. Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem because he doesn't want to dominate your life. He wants to die for you. He wants to free you. And if Jesus would ride a donkey in Jerusalem, then the prayer is, God, then could you ride into my heart? Could you come here? Could you deal with the universe that's inside of me and begin to make that experience your peace, your righteousness, your forgiveness? This is what Jesus is asking. Will you see Jesus for what he's doing for you? Will you see him as your king, but your king of sacrifice? Will you see him as your, the authority that you would give great allegiance to, all your allegiance to, and yet at the same time serving you? If you will, if you'll see him in that way, love him in that way, believe in him in that way, your life changes. It begins again. It starts over. Better than any New Year's Day resolution starts over forever. What would it look like to have that king shape your heart and let that shape the rest of your year? What would your life look like with Jesus in your life as king like that? Your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray. God, would you help us first just long kind of awaken our need for peace and wholeness and completeness? Would you just let us feel in a moment, Lord, how, how we want to be connected to you, how we want to know you, and that today, if we will receive what Jesus has done for us, if we'll believe it, if we'll trust it, that we could start this year out with peace that flows, a peace with God that turns into the peace of God in our life. Because the power and penalty of sin has been addressed. It's been atoned for. There's been a sacrifice for it. And now, in Christ, death passes over us so that we might really live What an incredible, what incredible news. Got to pray as we think about how we respond to that. It, it, maybe there's a better response than laying down our coats right now for Jesus or waving palm branches, but you gave us the Lord's Supper. You gave us this moment where we could see your sacrifice again. We could touch it. We could taste it. We could take it in and we could know 
and be reminded that we have peace with God because of blood on the cross. God, I pray for anybody in this room today that has never experienced that kind of peace, that wants that, that would start their their new year off with peace, or that today would be the day they trust, today would be the day where they believe, where they accept your invitation that, Jesus, what you've done for me, I see it, and now come, Lord, be Lord of my life. Be the king of my heart. And that we would take this supper, this bread and blood, and, and do it in a whole new way. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for doing the hard work. Thank you that you weep and cry because you want this so much for us. It matters to you. We matter to you. So thank you that we could take this moment and dedicate our lives, receive your grace again, know your forgiveness, and call you king. It's in your name we pray. Amen.